Yes, well, good morning, everyone, again. It's nice to be up here in a different capacity, um, um, share, opening God's Word with you and, um, yeah, sitting under it with, sitting under it with you. Um, before we get going, uh, why, don't we, why don't we pray? Um, dear Heavenly Father, thank you that um, you are a God who uh, loves um, your creation and that you have not let it go, but you have... Um, come to us to redeem it, um, to save it, to bring it back to yourself and to uh, enjoy it once again with us. And I pray now as we explore your, um, your word that you would give us a refined sense of your desire for humanity um, and for the way that you've come after it, um, for the way that you wanted to be with it, that we might have a similar kind of impulse in this world, that we might go after those who... Um, uh, struggling for life and hope and community um, that you have provided for us in your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, so as um, Ian just said, we're going to continue on uh, with this theme of of God's character. Uh, And today I want us to reflect on uh, the character of God as it relates to the outsider. Um, So the question I want to ask is, what do we learn from Scripture about God's heart for the stranger? That's the question I want to pursue. Now, of course, we know the answer to the question, don't we? <laughs> uh, God welcomes the stranger. Uh, and we also know the answer to the other question that closely follows. What does that mean for us? Is that, okay, well, because God uh, welcomes the stranger, well, so must we. Um, and the logic, it goes something like this. God welcomes the stranger, therefore we should too. And we see this logic throughout Scripture, right? Um, God forgave us, therefore we should forgive others. God first loved us, therefore um, we should love others. That's the kind of logic that operates when we say um, God has been hospitable, therefore we should be hospitable. Um, but I'd like to get our bearings to kind of... Uh, come to understand that kind of idea in a, in a bit more of a, of a complex um, way. Um, as generous as God is, as hospitable as God is, God is often shown to be inhospitable, isn't he? Um, throw your mind back to the very beginning uh, and reflect on the situation in the garden with Adam and Eve after they had uh, rebelled. Well, we see that Adam and Eve are not welcome in the garden. Uh, a God, he, he kicks them out. Uh, he doesn't want them in his presence. Uh, and he doesn't just kick them out for a short time. He says, you will never return. It's not very hospitable, is it? Uh, and in the next story, Genesis 4, we see that God rejects Cain's offering. Cain, of course, gets angry and kills Abel. Uh, and because of this, God rejects Cain. Uh, and he sends him to wander in the wilderness uh, for the rest of his life. It's not a picture of hospitality again, is it? Off you go. Um, and isn't this the same kind of relational dynamic that is central to the story of Israel time and time again? Um, think about the first moment, um, God saves Israel from slavery in Egypt and, of course, they wander through the desert to the land that God has prepared for them and they're about to enter it um, and out of fear of those who are in the land, they say, no, 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 we're not going to enter it. And so what does God do? Well, he says, well, off you go into the desert for 40 years. I don't welcome you into this land. It, quite inhospitable. Um, fast forward many years 
and Israel is in the land. And as we know, they've been perpetually failing to honour God with their lives by obeying the law with the right kind of heart. Uh, And what happens? Well, God allows Babylon to come in, uh, storm in there and take them into slavery. You see, God, in that moment, he was in no mood for showing hospitality, was he? Um, being welcoming to this nation that he desired to be with. You see, the idea that God is characterised by, by generous hospitality, it must be tempered by this truth that God is also characterised by inhospitality. In other words, however welcoming God is, uh, we see in equal measure how unwelcoming God can be. And what we're learning here is that God is not this kind of abstract principle. He is welcoming. Uh, God is hospitable, but not in principle. Uh, God is hospitable in a particular context. And, And what I mean by this is that God is hospitable in time because time matters. That's where we live in time. Um, And the reason this matters is because a given time, it reveals a particular set of conditions that either constrains or lets hospitality flourish. That's the situation we're seeing. And so we can't grasp what it means to say that God is hospitable, God is welcoming of the stranger, without grasping the context in which the stranger lives. Right? You see, in God's inhospitality... Um, it's, it's contextually bound to human disobedience. Uh, it's bound to the rebellion against God. That's the context. Uh, think about Adam and Eve again. Why were they booted out of the garden? Well, because they disobeyed God's command not to eat from the tree. Why was Cain condemned to wander in, in the wilderness? Well, of course, he gave an, a meaningless offering, one that didn't represent a right heart. Uh, and um, Israel, uh, in both situations, before they entered the land and once they'd entered the land, why would, was God not welcoming in those moments? Well, of course, they were rebelling against him. That, that's why. So God is not, in principle, unwelcoming and inhospitable in character. Um, God is unwelcoming and inhospitable in time when the circumstances demand it. And I want to say that the same is true when we reflect on the idea of hospitality and welcoming. God is not in principle welcoming and hospitable. God is welcoming and hospitable in time when the circumstances demand it. In other words... There are earthly circumstances in which God demonstrates his generous and costly hospitality. You see, the very idea of welcoming uh, a stranger in, I think, actually sets the scene for us. Uh, um, A stranger, uh, as you well know, is someone that we don't know. Uh, They have no relation to us. Uh, They don't belong. Uh, They don't belong in our homes. They don't belong in my home. I can't expect anything from them. They don't deserve anything from me. Um, They are a stranger to me. 
That's the situation. Um, but there are two people who live in our apartment in, in Sofia in Bulgaria who are not strangers to me. Uh, I'm related to them. Uh, they belong in my home. They rightly expect things from me. They deserve things from me. Uh, and they are my daughters, right? Svetlana and Mimi, they're not strangers to, to Katie and me. We don't welcome home them and strangers into our home when they get home from school, right? When we speak about welcoming strangers, we're not speaking about friends. We're not speaking about our family, our children, our parents. We're talking about another person out there. And so immediately we go, oh, there is some kind of relational distance. Um, And it is this distance that I want to say characterizes the context of, of hospitality. Uh, and this is the context of God's hospitality in this world. Uh, relational distance that's been made so, why? Well, because of, of sin, which we've already briefly explored in the, in the picture of Adam and Eve being cast out of God's presence in the garden uh, because of their rebellion. You see, if, if relational distance is the context of God's hospitality, his, his welcoming of humanity, then it will be characterized, the welcoming, it will be characterized by God dealing with this problem of relational distance. Um, and so this is what I want to work out in, in the time that remains. What does it look like for God to overcome this relational distance in time? One of the, from my perspective, one of the most beautiful themes that threads its way through Scripture is is this one, God welcoming the stranger. Um, Despite their distance from God, God is working to be with them. Uh, And um, one particular stranger that I do love to to trace in various aspects is, uh, and and this stranger, it doesn't get get much airtime, is the eunuch. The eunuch. Um, I'm not sure if you're, if you're aware, but the Old Testament laws are pretty rough on, on the eunuch. Um, in fact, exclusionary. Um, they put them over to the side. On the grounds that their, that their bodies are in some sense broken, inadequate, are flawed, not right, impure. Whether it was because they had been worshipping other foreign gods and they'd done things to their bodies or um, whether it was the case that um, they could not have have children and so fulfill the creation mandate in the beginning, go and fulfill, go and fill the earth or whether it was because they couldn't be circumcised according to the law, whatever was the case, they were not welcome in the assembly of God. They were not welcome in the assembly of God. When we first meet the eunuch, um, he's not welcomed by God. So if you have your Bible, turn to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. These are the the couple of verses we're going to to travel through as we come to understand, reflect upon this theme. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1 is very, very clear. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of God. Pretty clear. The eunuch is not welcome in God's presence. He's a stranger. If that was the last word on the eunuch, 
that would be damning, wouldn't it? Um, The law has said that he cannot enter God's presence. That would mean that he would be condemned. Um, But it's not the last word. Uh, Thanks be to God. Um, In Isaiah 56, which we we heard read um, a few moments ago, we come across this beautiful prophecy, a beautiful prophecy, uh, in which the eunuch and the stranger, interestingly, they're put together, the foreigner, they're put together, um, they're brought into view. Uh, And what we see is that there is hope for the eunuch and that there's hope for the foreigner. Uh, that their brokenness and their, their relational distance from God is not going to be, in the end, determinative. Uh, in this passage that we saw, it, the idea is not merely raised. It's not this kind of possibility. No, no, no. The, the, the idea is raised as a promise that the eunuch and the stranger, the foreigner, will one day be with God. Let me read verses 3 to verse 7 in Isaiah 56. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no, no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them... I will give within my temple wall and its walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will last forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. Here he says it. These... I will bring to my holy mountain and I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Isn't that a beautiful contrasting picture than back in Deuteronomy 23? It's a very, very different picture than what the Lord describes here. Here we have God's promise of welcome and hospitality to those who were previously barred from enjoying it. Um, And again, how beautiful is that last line? Um, To the eunuch and the stranger, he says, these I'll bring bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. You see, here we see God's heart of, of generous hospitality. Despite the law barring them from being with God in the temple, Isaiah Uh, speaks here of a time when the law will not determine such things. God is working for the eunuch here and the foreigner, which we begin to see play out, which we begin to see the fulfilment of when we get to Matthew chapter 19, um, verse 12. The context here in Matthew 19 is that, um, as usual, Jesus is debating the Pharisees, Um, And here particularly, it's about the law and marriage and divorce. Um, And after he's finished with the Pharisees, he he does what he normally does and takes the disciples away and and starts to debrief with them to kind of help them understand what was just going on. And in verse 12, he says these famous words and quite fascinating words. Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, he says this, For there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. 
And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. What is, what is Jesus talking about here? We have just seen that the eunuch is not welcome in God's presence. And now Jesus is saying that there are some people who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. I mean, we need to grasp how scandalous that kind of thing is in, in light of the law. Um, but it's also scandalous for a whole bunch of other reasons. Isn't it? Um, and let me give you a couple. In the time, the, the word eunuch was a slur. It was like a pejorative word. It was like a, you know, a, a name to call someone. But particularly for a man who was of age and who hadn't been married. Um, in fact, we read in one source that someone who was a eunuch who hadn't been married was a half man. That's how they were kind of um, speaking about these people. So do you see where things had gone for the eunuch? Not only were they barred from, from entering the temple, but now we can see here that within the Jewish custom and also in the Roman situation, they were outcasts, social outcasts, not welcome in the temple and not welcome in society. Um, this person really is a stranger. They need some kind of welcome to, to enter back in. And Jesus knows this. He knows the place of the eunuch in the law concerning the temple. Uh, he knows the place of the eunuch in society, both Jewish and um, Roman. And he probably, um, and he certainly knows the prophecy in Isaiah 56. Absolutely. And knowing all of this, he draws on this broken body to describe himself. A man of age, but not married. A willed choice for the sake of the kingdom of God. And he says, some people choose to live like a eunuch for the kingdom of God. You see, in this moment, Jesus chooses to embrace the, the place and the status of the unwelcome eunuch as that which describes his life and his ministry, this offensive place in society. He steps into that place. Of course, this is symbolic, isn't it, because Jesus wasn't a eunuch. But surely this is symbolic that the eunuchs themselves, they're not far off from enjoying Isaiah's prophecy if the Son of God is somehow identifying with this person who can't enter the temple and be with God. And so we can end our, our, our quick um, trip through, through Scripture, um, landing in Acts chapter 8. You might know in Acts chapter 8 we uh, bump into an Ethiopian eunuch. And uh, you, you might know the story. He's travelling from Jerusalem back home in a chariot, and he's reading Isaiah 53, and he just doesn't get it. Uh, and um, Philip arrives on the scene, and he helps the eunuch to interpret it, to understand it. And Philip says, oh, no, that's about Jesus, the suffering servant, the one who suffers for others. And he goes on to tell him all about who is Jesus. And then we get to these beautiful verses in chapter, in, in chapter 8, verses 36 to 38. Let me read those together. Acts chapter 8, verse 36 to 38. 
As they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's some water. What can stand in the way of me, of my being baptised? And he gave orders to the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip was baptised. Now, notice the eunuch's question. Very interesting question. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? What can stand in the way? He's just come from the temple where he was worshipping God, but he was not allowed in. So what stands in the way is actually a very, very good question. Um, Because, of course, in the past, much has stood in the way of him entering into the presence of God, right? He could not enter the assembly. He could not participate in the ceremonies. He was not welcomed because the Lord did not allow it. And now he says, what can stand in the way of my being baptised? And, of course, no one answers the question, do they? But we get this beautiful picture of an answer of that question in verse 38. The chariot is stopped and he is baptised because nothing stands in the way of this eunuch being baptised, which means that nothing stands in the way of him being in the presence of God, from being welcomed into the kingdom of God, of being with God. It's been a, a pretty long journey, right, from, from Eden all the way through to Acts chapter 8. Um, through the, the seemingly harsh exclusionary measures of the law, you, we've got our Isaiah's um, wonderful hope-filled promise. We've got Jesus' identification with this outcast and then the, the final beautiful scene of the eunuch who puts his faith in Jesus. Uh, But I hope what we've seen in this moment is not that God is in principle hospitable or inhospitable. In every single moment, we see something different, but in time, um, what we have seen is that for the stranger or the foreigner and the eunuch, um, those who don't dwell with God, those who are not allowed to dwell with God, God has been working in time to make a way for them to be with him. You see, the the trouble with the basic idea that we began with, that God's welcoming to the stranger, therefore we should be welcoming to the stranger, is that it doesn't account for the trouble that humanity finds itself in, that we find ourselves in, that they out there find themselves in. You see, it short circuits what Scripture teaches us about God's character, You see, what we've seen is that God is not simply hospitable or inhospitable because we we are strangers. God has to make a way. He must work to be with us at great cost to himself. He's committed to that. You see, this is what I want us to take away today, is that hospitality that welcomes strangers, it demands work. That is costly. It's, not in, it's easy to be in principle hospitable, but to welcome strangers in real life, which God is in the business of, demands work and is costly. You see, God could have sat back in heavenly glory, couldn't he? Complete 
fulfilled in loving unity. Um, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, allowing us to, to just go our own way, letting sin run its course, um, letting the world go to whatever end it needs to go to. Uh, but God does not sit back, does he? Because he didn't need us. He doesn't need us. And we don't need them, do we, out there? Um, no, God does not sit back dwelling in heavenly glory. No, he, he saw us in our messy, com- complex lives uh, and he came to us in our sin. And, of course, we know that he became sin for us. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, not only stood in the place of the eunuch that day in the face of the Pharisees and his disciples. No, no, Jesus was nailed in the place of the eunuch on the cross. That's why he could enter. Um, You see, Jesus there, he removes the curse of the law on the eunuch, making him a stranger no more. He brings the eunuch into his presence. It's a beautiful picture. Paul says in Galatians, this is the last passage, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Of course, so that we might be included in God's family, so that we might be welcomed back into the home, into God's household, where we belong, where there is peace, where this relational distance is no more. Um, the distance, the kind of distance that is between me and my daughters when they walk in the door after school. Um, or even better, the kind of distance when the prodigal son returns to the father, um, having blown his inheritance and wandering off from the home. He is welcomed and the father is delighted at great cost to himself. Christ has redeemed the eunuch from the curse of the law and he's redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so we are welcomed back. But what cost? What cost? Of course, we know Jesus suffered many things and then he died so that we might enjoy what the eunuch enjoyed, the precise thing. So let's be very clear about hospitality, welcoming the stranger. Reunion with God was not cheap. Peace with God was not cheap. Community with God is never cheap. Where there is separation, the cost must be bridged, and that is not cheap. Um, Do you see what we're learning about God's character here is that God does welcome the stranger, but he doesn't only work to achieve that welcome. He's also willing to bring upon himself the cost of what that means to welcome the stranger. God did not only work to come to us, but he also took the cost of what it took to be with us on himself. And so we can come back to the the obvious question, what does that mean for us? Well, of course there's this invitation to welcome the stranger, but now it's a bit more complex, isn't it? Um, um, God welcomes strangers and we must too, but remember, hospitality happens in a context. It happens where there is relational distance. Um, In our churches, 
um, in our communities, in our families, in our country, and in this world. We have relational separation, we have division, we have difference, and that's the task of hospitality, to overcome that, to bridge this relational division, to be with people as God created us to be, both with God and with each other. But God, he doesn't simply want us to um, welcome the stranger because that's not the way of the gospel. Um, Hospitality, it comes from a heart to be with the other person, to share in another person's life. It's not simply a, a box to tick. It comes from a heart of love to be with the other person. That's what we see in God in coming to us in Jesus. And, of course, um, our desire to want to be with that person out there or that estranged family member or child or whoever, to have a heart warmed for these people, it, it can only be a work of the Spirit. And I think we need to earnestly pray for a heart that is warmed um, for these people, for the stranger. And the reason that our hearts need to be warmed for the stranger is because willpower alone won't be enough. If you've tried it, you will know. Um, Hospitality that welcomes strangers demands work that is costly and willpower won't get us through paying that cost. If we do not love the strangers in our midst and those out there, from where will we find the resources to do the costly work of welcoming them? Um, of going out into Margaret River to find people who are lost, who are lonely, who are looking for a family, ultimately looking for a, a place where they can find life and hope and joy in the midst of a world that is groaning under the weight of sin and death? And where are we going to find the resources to go into those places to find those people longing for these things? You see, showing hospitality, I want to keep on telling you, it requires work work which can only be done out of love for the stranger. And so this requires work. Um, Our comfort is disrupted. Uh, Our dining tables become disrupted. Our lounge rooms become disrupted. Christmas lunch will look a little bit different. Our bank balances might be lower. Our use of time certainly will be different. You can see here, welcoming strangers is costly. Um, But as we've seen, um, this is not something that we just have to work up our, our, our gumption to go and do. No, this is something that God did for us. We have a wonderful reason to do this. So this is not something we do to tick a box, but it's we do we something we do because it has been done to us. We have been received as a stranger um, by God, him having taken the curse for us so that we might go and do the same. So let's not take this as an obligation, but as a, a difficult invitation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that even though at different times in Scripture we cannot understand um, your plan and what you are doing but thank you that when we when we land with Jesus we finally see your plan to bring um, 
Um, people who have rebelled against you and don't deserve to be with you and cannot be with you, um, we see your plan to bring them to yourself. Thank you that you do have a heart for the stranger, um, that you um, sent your son into this world um, for Jesus to give up its place um, um, in eternal unity uh, and completion, but thank you that he came to this earth to um, into this broken mess to become this broken mess for us, that we might through him um, walk into your presence, that we might have community with you, um, peace and unity where there is no condemnation, uh, where there is um, satisfaction in you, um, relational unity with you. And Lord, uh, we see this world is a broken place and in some ways the church is broken in its relationship with this world. And so, yeah, I pray that we would see a real way of overcoming this brokenness, of going to these people, of welcoming strangers, that we might do the work to go to them, um, to um, find ways to um, be with people, to understand their lives so that we might be able to have good relationships with them, to offer the kinds of joy and hope and life that we have in you um, so that they might also have a deep, deep sense of, of life with you too. Um, I pray that you will continue to grow this church in, um, in, in the direction that it's going. I can see in the board that community is at the heart of their drive. And I pray that this would just be something that continues to drive its way um, into this community where uh, Margaret River will see a, a beautiful place of healing, of coming to you where there is no condemnation, um, but salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.